Give me Falcia. Welcome to Crombiehouse Short Stories of Poetry for September 1st, 2023. Hello, my name is Terrence O'Donnell, and I'm here with some more good stories of poetry for everyone this week. This once-a-week podcast is being hosted on RSS.com and also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Intunes, Google Podcasts, Deezer, and a few others. A little about me. I'm a senior citizen of Irish descent and a self-professed Shauna Kay, a Gaelic storyteller. I want listeners to feel like we're sitting under the village oak tree to Crown Biha, which translates to the Tree of Life. While here together, I'll read you fictional stories and poetry from writers I found in Medium.com, including some of my own stories on occasion. Some are scary, some are very thoughtful and soul-searching, others are just plain fun. This podcast is free to subscribe to for all who care to listen. I do offer the option of donations on the RSS.com webpage, where this show is hosted to support my work, much like passing the hat at the end of my visits to your digital village. I begin this podcast for the purpose of showcasing writers from around the world who are usually not on somebody's bestseller list, but would like to be. My goal is to entertain you with good stories and poetry that will spark your imagination and hopefully stay with you for a wee bit after we parted for the day. So now we can get into stories for this week. I have a mix of stories and poetry for you this week, all relatively short, so I've got about eight different writers to give to you. They're all fiction of one kind or another, or some poetry. So buckle up and let me bring you the very first story, which is called Bobby Got His Gun by Michael Campy. And he published this on August 8th. Bobby B., Bobby B., he got an RPG. How he came to be in possession of this item, Bobby would probably say, is none of your concern. What he plans to do with it, however, and Bobby would agree, is most assuredly your concern. You see, Bobby grew up having a fundamental disagreement with industrial civilization. He knew from early on that the way we lived was just wrong. Ever since he was little, he had watched in horror as progress destroyed the natural world. The places where he could go and not encounter this destruction became fewer and fewer as suburbia took over his formerly idyllic hometown. He used to be able to ride his bike and be basically out of town in a few minutes. But as the juggernaut of modernity plowed under and bulldozed the empty spaces to make room for malls and housing projects, the places he could go disappeared. This disturbed him deeply, as it seemed the only person who was appalled by this was himself. He tried to talk people about it, but they were all agreed that Bobby was wrong, and that what was happening was just a natural order of things in the modern world. There was nothing natural about it, Bobby would think, and he became more and more withdrawn as he came to the conclusion that the modern world was entirely insane. There was no room for someone who thought the way Bobby did, and rather than get upset by that, Bobby believed that it was a good thing. To be thought insane by insane people was, well, pretty sane. So on this fine summer day, Bobby, toting his new weapon, began to plan just how he was going to help end this insanity. Bobby had what he would term a somewhat flexible morality. He did not think that hurting people would advance his goal. He did think that hurting the things that help people continue to destroy the world was a viable option. Someone had told him once that people who protected the environment were not terrorists as long as they didn't kill people. If they just disabled things, then they were more accurately described as saboteurs. Even though the idea of assassinating bad people had occurred to him, he began to view that as counterproductive. 
and ultimately wouldn't help nearly as much as taking away the means by which they continued to destroy. So Bobby settled on being a saboteur. His primary target, and the U.S. is a target-rich environment, was going to be electrical substations. They were generally easy to get at, especially in more rural areas, and taking one down would have a much wider effect in killing someone. There were also miles and miles of untended power lines that Bobby thought of as kind of an appetizer on his way to the main course. Little by little, for a long time assuming that there was a long time left, which is rather presumptuous, Bobby had his eye on a substation in Utah. He had thought long and hard about where his first target would be, and he had chosen a town called Saratoga Springs, which was south of Salt Lake City. There were two factors contributing to this choice. One, it was seemed as good as any place to, as any to start, and two was that the NSA had a data center there. Might as well go for a twofer. He hit Salt Lake City about two in the morning. He'd always liked driving in the dark, and although now it was getting crowded even in the middle of the night, there were no more long, leisurely drives. There were people everywhere all the time, which was yet another disturbing fact of modern American life. Bobby's thought, as he approached his destination, was that he was saving the world one substation at a time. Although he was somewhat unsure about what he was saving the world for, it might very well be that he was doing it just to keep himself busy while he waited for the end, or it might be just because he liked to watch things blow up, maybe equal parts of each. He was driving a car that was not registered in his name that he thought had bought in Los Angeles a few days earlier. It was better that way because he could always pick up another one and just abandon the one he was currently driving. It helped to keep him off the radar. He pulled up across the street from his destination a little before 3 a.m. Hesitation would increase the chance of him being seen, so he got out of the car, pulled the RPG out of the trunk, supported it across the roof of the car, and fired the rocket. Explosion was magnificent, living up in every way to his expectations. He heard sirens in the distance and thought that this response time was impressive. He drove away into the night. So that's the end of this story. And it's interesting because I, I mentioned this to him when I saw the story in the beginning. I wonder how many people this might give ideas to. So my next story is from a noted act, climate activist. Name it Ray Katz. Story is entitled Killing Credits. Fiction, any resembling to carbon credits, is purely intentional. He had enough killing credits to get Jeffrey Dahmer off death row. Murders were down. Well, not quite. The rate of increase had slowed. The point is, the system was working, nominally. As the earth rapidly grew hotter, tempers and violence flared. People were on edge. And in America, everyone had guns. Naturally, murder became even more common. Instead of a random mass murder twice a week or so, there were dozens every day. Every goddamn day. The government sprang into action. The market could fix this. The market fixes everything. We just needed the right plan, the right incentives. We didn't want to move too fast. So, the Wizards of Wall Street came up with a financial vehicle to do the job. Killing credits. It would make murder reduction financially attractive, and Wall Street would make, well, a killing. How it works. Ambitious killers of the Jeffrey Dahmer type would be given a murder target, and over time the number of murders allowed would be reduced. Meanwhile, the Dahmer-like people could buy a killing credit for $5 or so, allowing him to purchase the right to commit an extra murder. 
the killing credit would be sold by another mass murderer who, that year, had killed fewer people than he was authorized. The net effect was fewer murders, and at the same time, people made money. This would stimulate the economy and create jobs. Patience. All indications, killing credits were working. True, it's not that well enforced. There are still many unauthorized murders outside the system, and the total number of murders allowed has barely been lowered. We just need patience. Yes, your loved ones are still being shot, maimed, and killed, but we are in transition. Isn't that exciting? We feel confident that by 2050, murders will be down to zero. Our projections indicate that by that year, there will be nobody remaining to kill. Meanwhile, the Jeffrey Dahmer type can fire a will. He has the credits. And that's Ray Katz's story, a very interesting take on gun violence here in the United States. So now I have a different story. This is kind of a scary one. And it's from H.R. Parker. It's entitled, I Need a Vacation. I'm sorry, I never meant to scare you. What did you think lurking in the corner of my room with your red glowing eyes would do? Make me jump for joy, I asked, exasperated. The demon takes a hesitant step close to my bed. Look, hell isn't all it's cracked up to be. I want to experience life on Earth. It's only for a few fleeting moments. Earth isn't all it's cracked up to be either, demon, I quip, wrapping the covers tighter around me. Have you seen what's going on up here lately? Earth is hell, my friend. You know, I could have just possessed you without asking. I thought I would ask this time, because you humans tend to expel me as fast as I can get in your skin. I thought if I asked, maybe you'd say yes. Okay, but only for a couple of weeks, I answer, standing up to bravely face the creature. But after that, you're taking me back to hell with you. I need a vacation. And that's, that's her little story. Very good one, actually. Uh, interesting take on uh, a little bit of scary stuff. This next one is a poem. And it's not intended to be scary at all. It's called The Dance of Time by Catherine Meyerstead. She published this in a publication called The Lark. The bonds of love and connection run deep and eternal, shaping the very fabric of our lives. It is in those connections that we find strength, wisdom, and inspiration. In this heartfelt tribute, I find myself reflecting on two remarkable souls that left an indelible mark on my life, my beloved grandparents. My grandfather, a builder by trade, laid the foundation not just for structures made of bricks and mortar, but also by our family's values, integrity, and resilience. His hands, whether by time and hard work, were the very embodiment of dedication and love. My grandmother, with her wisdom and grace, was the gentle guiding star in my life. Her insights were like rays of light, illuminating the path towards kindness, compassion, and understanding. The connection we shared was something beyond words a love that transcended all earthly bounds. They were two halves of a whole, completing each other in ways that only true love can. When my grandpa departed from this world, I felt a profound loss, but I knew that a reunion was waiting me. A year later, my grandmother followed, leaving behind a space filled only with cherished memories. I missed them every day. Their absence is a void that nothing can fill, but their love and the lessons they taught me continue to guide my journey. I know that they are together now in a place where love never fades, and I find solace in that thought. This poem is a humble dedication to them, a small token of my immense gratitude and love. It captures the essence of a love that is everlasting, a connection that defies time and space, much like the love my grandparents shared. Their love story may not be written in books or sung in songs, but it lives on in my heart. It is a love that I can carry with me, 
a love that continues to inspire and comfort me. May they rest in peace, together and happy, as they were in life. The dance of time, in the garden of love, two hearts did meet. A connection so pure, passionate and sweet. A dance began, slow and divine. A promise made, your soul and mine. Days turned to years, laughter to tears. Together they faced life's joys and fears. I hope they built with dreams and care, a life they shared, nothing to compare. Through winter's chill and summer's embrace, they danced through time in love's gentle grace. No words were needed, just a glance, a touch. In each other's arms, it all meant so much. Adventures were many, some big and some small. But what mattered most, they had love through it all. Time was a river, flowing without end, in the winding course they'd never bend. They grew old together, yet love never aged. In the book of their life, a beautiful page. One day she woke, and he was no longer there. A silence profound, a vacant chair. She wandered alone, her heart heavy and sore. Yet she felt his presence now even more. In the wind's whisper, the sun's warm kiss, in the dance of life, his touch she'd miss. She danced alone, yet never apart, for he was the rhythm in her very heart. She found new ways, she lived, she learned, but to their dance she always returned. Life's a journey with twists and turns, with lessons profound and love that burns. In time's great dance, connections remain in hearts that love again and again. Through life and beyond, love finds a way. In the dance of time, it never will sway. Embrace the dance, hold it dear and true. For love is eternal and waiting for you. So this is a good poem here. And it talks about life and love. And for people, you know, who go through their whole life with one wife and one husband. That's a, it's a really meaningful, meaningful poem. So this one, I'm going to go over here. This is another scary story. It's a short one. And it's entitled The Skeptic and the Doe. He wanted me to remind everybody that he has a website that has more stories on it. It's at https colon forward slash forward slash t dot co forward slash capital A capital R I X capital J five capital Y capital X capital J and O looks like capital O. Um, but that's where a lot of his stories, he publishes them on Twitter. So I'm thinking that that's where he is, where he's at right now. But his story right now is The the Skeptic and the Doe by David Pahor. His grace extends to scoffers. I breathe as the instructors have taught me, sprawling in the grass outside the forest proper, tracking the movement of two preschool children in the wire fence garden of the first house in the suburb. I'm increasingly desperate. My vision's acuteness burns pinpricks into the myelin sheaths of my optic nerves. I discern the minutest details of the petite figures. As I yawn excitedly, my tongue's motion compresses the overflow of saliva pool beneath it, squirting a jet out of my mouth. Nothing like comic relief, I reflect absently. I've been studying them in, this, in the descending dust for half an hour, my self-constraint and pride withering in the glare of arrogant urge. My frayed leather cuffs on my wrists are missing their metal rings. A sure sign, procurement has been on another cost-saving exercise. We are meant to be safely tied up inside our metamorphosis pens for 48 hours after stumbling back from our commando missions in the umbral landscape. We reassume our human form swiftly enough 
in a few hours, but the cravings and impulses from the sunless hills are a different matter. The tainted human soul only reluctantly relinquishes the contagion. Dear God, please stop me as my muscles tense for the sprint to the fence. I promise I will only take one. I promise. I breathe as the instructors have taught me. It doesn't work anymore, and there is no supreme being from what I have seen on the other side. I prepare as the blood rays die behind the buildings, and my erection becomes unbearable. From the whispering trees, a doe steps hesitantly in the meadow, not thirty yards away, scrumptious in its pubescence. I thank him profusely, seeking forgiveness. I leap. And that's a very short story, and it takes you behind the eyes of a predator. So now I move over to my next story. And it's entitled, My One. And she's got in parentheses here, Fur, spelled F-U-R, by Simone Blue. And this came out of Crush Publications. This morning I woke with dirt under my claws and leaves in my fur, and the smells of the forest on my body. It was no dream. I left the grounds last night and ran with my pack. Tonight I am the wondrous wolf girl, merely an exhibit and onlookers will stare and point and make crude remarks. In spite of the signs, some will try to stroke me, take liberties, pull up my fur. My life has become a sideshow joke, and I'm disgusted by it. A stranger approaches, and I inhale his scent. He is my one. And that's all there is to that one. And it's, it's kind of spine-tingling a little bit. And then I've got a kind of a love story. A poem of unbreakable bonds. Conversation with Myself, A Single Mother's Heart by Catherine Meyerstadt. So I, I normally don't publish two poems from the same person in the, in the, on the same Friday. But I had a kind of a glitch in the scheduling this week. So the original story I was going to give you, I had to reschedule for another week because of issues with scheduling things so instead i moved her poem from next week into this week and because she does such a good job it's i don't think it's going to hurt anybody's feelings there's a white door unassuming yet elegant in its simplicity on its handle a tiny bell is knitted its purpose a mystery to those unacquainted with the stories this household holds as it cracks open a wave of warmth and the intoxicating scent of nostalgia rush forth inviting one into a sanctuary of memories. The room is alive with the musical chime of laughter, the most heartfelt kind. At the center sits a sturdy wooden table, and around it, a tableau of family that brims with life and joy. There's a woman named Catherine, with her face marked by graceful lines of time, and battles past and her eyes sparkling with a fire that speaks of indomitable spirit and unyielding love. This is a mother, a warrior, and her most treasured companions, her three sons. The eldest, with a stubble shadowing his face, throws his head back in laughter, teasing the other a younger adult brother who, with mock indignation, is trying hard not to laugh. Their camaraderie is infectious. A little away, the youngest, still a child, with twinkling eyes full of mischief, is waiting for his turn to make his move on the board game spread out before them. His innocent zeal makes it evident. This game is much more than just play. It's a shared moment, a memory in the making. The weight of the room is palpable, not with heaviness, but with stories. Stories of a journey taken, of battles fought, both within and outside. They had seen days when hope seemed distant, 
in nights when despair was a close companion. Now in this room, those battles seem distant, almost forgotten. What remains is the love that fortified them, the joy of shared moments, and the pride of mother who, against all odds, built a sanctuary of love and laughter for her sons. In the quiet moments between the laughter and the playful banter, if one listens closely, one might hear the gentle tinkle of the bell on the door, a reminder of the magic that lies within, and the love that turned a house into a home. The heartbeat of a mother. In the reflection of my soul, three heartbeats resonate. Three sons, my pride and joy, my love and life's estate. A single mother's journey, both arduous and divine. A path of endless love, where our hearts intertwine. From the first cry of a newborn to the laughter of grown men, through sleepless nights and first steps, I'll live it all again. In their eyes I find my purpose, in their smiles my strength anew. A love so fierce and boundless, so pure, deep, and true. Books were once my refuge, a solace from life's strife. Now my children are my chapters, the authors of my life. Each one a different story, each one a unique song. A melody of existence, symphony lifelong. But dear reader, don't just see me. Look deeper and you'll find. A mirror of your own heart, your struggles, and your grind. We all are mothers, fathers, lovers of some kind. Connected by our heartstrings, by love, we're all defined. So embrace your unique journey, your tears, your love, your fight. For in our shared humanity, we find our inner light. And that was another good poem from her. I like hers. Um, you'll probably be hearing more of those going forward. My last story is another scary story. And this one is from Rain Sanning, published in the Kraken Lore. It's entitled, He Walked with a Zombie Last Night, in parentheses. And he suggested a soundtrack, I Walk with a Zombie, by Rocky Erickson. My body knows the walking ritual without needing conscious instruction. Muscle memory. Feet slide into socks, into shoes. Shoulders shrug into a jacket. Sleeves roll down to wrists. Hands fold a scarf loose around my neck, then tuck themselves into gloves. Do I need an umbrella? Better take one, in case. Fingers rest on the doorknob for a moment, thinking if I've forgotten anything. Oh yeah, Dad's old shotgun. Better leave the umbrella, then. When the world ended, Clara and I took advantage by moving into a newly vacant farmhouse. It sat on an acreage an hour from the nearest remains of civilization. We'd been working like dogs just to pay someone else's mortgage in the city for way too long. So this was a bit like a dream. This was our chance to set down roots. I don't mean metaphorical roots, like babies. That would be irresponsible. I mean actual roots, plant roots, tomatoes, cucumbers, and apple trees. For a while, it was great. We grew what we could and raided the grocery stores in town when we needed other things. The electrical grid was mostly intact, so that was a plus as far as preserving food went. The crunch of autumn leaves underfoot echoes across the courtyard between the house and the barn. It's not cold enough for me to see my breath yet, but it's definitely headed in that direction. I hold the loaded shotgun tense, waist high. My eyes scan the tree line for movement. I deliberately slow my breath and scan again, closer this time. Check behind me towards the house. Check the shadows of the shed. Try to pretend there couldn't be anything lurking around the rusted tractor. My paranoid brain thinks it has seen something around the far corner of the barn. It puts my whole body on alert. Blood pumps double time to my limbs. My lungs pull in extra large breaths of oxygen. 
eyes and ears straining through the dim evening light to see if what I fear is there, is actually there. The world ended two years ago. As it turned out, it didn't end in fire or in ice. Hypersonic projectiles and bioweapons did the job well enough. The meek did not inherit the earth, neither did the cockroaches, and the zombies burst into flame in direct sunlight, so it wasn't super difficult to avoid them. Yep, these weren't the traditional horror movie zombies, descending on surviving humans in hordes and eating them to the grisly soundtrack of screams and tearing flesh. Gross. No, these zombies were pretty chill by comparison. They were actually more like ghosts. Like syphilis victims, their brains were whittled down until nothing but a few core memories from their human life remained. They spent most of their time repeating deep-seated patterns on a loop, like the route they took to get to work every morning, or midday coffee runs, always the same order. I followed one to the gym once. He pumped iron for 40 minutes, then ambled home again. It did start with a virus, though. The movies got that part right. Supposedly, it wasn't on purpose. Supposedly, it was a lab leak situation. But it's hard to believe that with patient zeros popping up in 30 different countries within the same day. Whatever, though. This is how things are now. May as well make the best of it. Claire and I sure did. After a moment of silence, nothing shows itself, so I continue on. Some, but not a lot, of tension eases out of my shoulders as I turn the latch and quickly let myself into the barn. A window in the loft lets in moonlight. Once, a motorized conveyor belt would have been used to bring hay in through that window. Most of the loft floor has collapsed, and the remaining bales have fallen onto the barn aisle. Some of them still have a hint of that sweet, grassy hay smell, while some have started to mold. I take off my coat and scarf and change into a set of deeply stained coveralls, full sleeves, a hood, and thick, stiff denim to cover an inch of my body. I add more protection by keeping on the gloves and donning a ski mask. I can hear the occasional rustle of shifting feet in the sawdust and the gentle whoosh of breath through lungs as I approach the stalls. They're quiet, since they're mostly stationary. There's no one to eat and no sunlight to run from. They don't need to breathe anymore. Just like the gym rat and the coffee fiends, these zombie bodies hang on to their habits. In the beginning, there was panic, of course. The zombies were perfectly capable of eating people they encountered on their ritualistic loops. Fear and hysteria ruled the day. Then we discovered that they couldn't tolerate sunlight. The remainder of the military moved in and started rounding up the zombies at night and depositing them in pens so they would burn as soon as their sun rose. It was barbaric, if you ask me, especially when the human population dwindled and we discovered that they weren't going out of their way to eat people. They really just wanted to pretend they were still going to work or visiting a girlfriend or taking their dog for a walk. There were a lot of dog-walking zombies in the early days. People really cling closely to that one. If you stayed away from their loops at night, you'd be fine, generally. When we realized how to live relatively safely around them, things got a lot better for those of us still alive. That's when I, Claire and I moved out to the country. We've been here ever since. I raised the suppressed shotgun and tilt it through the bars of the first horse stall in the barn. Inside is a zombie. He's just standing there breathing, but he gets worked up when he smells me. They always do. I fire once, a perfect headshot. Then comes the gross part. I slice into the zombie's abdomen and coat myself in blood and gore. Once finished, I test the disguise by walking past the other stalls holding zombies. They just stand there pretending to breathe. No one tries to eat me. I'm ready for my walk. At some point after we stop panicking, 
The remaining world scientists got together at a convention in Geneva. They wanted to look for a cure. There were mixed responses to this. Some people thought it too risky. They wanted to wipe out all the zombies and not look back. Some people were keeping family members chained up in the basement by that point, and they were ecstatic about the possibility of returning them to their former selves. I didn't understand a lot of the scientific details, but in the end it was a wasted effort. There is no cure. I leave the barn and walk back towards the house. Clara's there, waiting. I wonder if some part of her remembers waiting for me in life as well. This is her loop, her ritual. She walks the perimeter of the property each evening. It is the one thing her dead Swiss cheese brain couldn't let go of. It turns out this is my loop as well, though I do it consciously. I fall into step beside her, and thanks to my smearing of zombie innards, she doesn't recognize me as human, doesn't react. I have a full conversation with her in my head. How is your day today, darling? Not bad. There's some green beans that need to be picked. I brought in some lettuce and stuff for a salad. That sounds nice for dinner. Do you think you want to watch a movie afterwards? The reality is that we walk in silence. Me, lost in my thoughts, and her, just lost. I know this only ends in one of three ways. Either she'll eat me, infect me, or I'll end it with a shotgun blast her head. But not tonight. Tonight, we just walk together. And that's it for stories. Um, like I said, it's a pretty good mix. Um, some really heart, heart, what I call uh, heart-tugging poems. And a couple of scary things. Uh, this last one a little scary, but gross in some ways. Uh, but I hope it gave you a good mix. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. Uh, as I said, I try to offer you a good a mix of everything. So don't forget to read the newsletter for this show. It's going to be available in Medium and Substack and the blog section of my website, Crombie Hop. And at this point, I'll leave you with my parting song. It's entitled Portlidge by the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makeup. Now it's sung in Gales. Gales or Gaelic, if you like the English version, just so you know. Until next week, slantia. I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it and you'll return again for another episode of Crown Beha Stories and Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more the merrier. 
Search for The Crown Biha Podcast in your favorite mobile app. I hope I've achieved my goal in helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I try to entertain you today. As a Shanghai, I want to continue to delight you with a story or poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your blessings outnumber the shamrocks that grow, and may trouble avoid you wherever you go. Schlange Foyle, which means goodbye for now in Irish. <laughs>